Yo, just a note. All podcasts that have to do with George Lay's The Political Mind will have the letters on the title G-L-P-M, George Lay, Political Mind. Thanks. Yo, this is the Ancient Texan. We're going to look at um, the second chapter of George Lay, The Political Mind. And I'm, I'm kind of excited by this chapter. It's more or less an introduction to the book and the subjects that are going to be co- covered. And it's kind of mind-boggling to make a little pun there. The first chapter is called Why the Mind? There is an immediate compelling reason our democracy is in danger. That danger has its roots in money, power, social structure, and history, but its ultimate source is in the brains of our citizens. The political divide in America is located in our brains, in the way Americans understand the world. One fundamentally democratic, one fundamentally anti-democratic. But unconscious modes of thought are not visible to the naked eye, and so they have thus far gone undiscussed in public disclosure, despite their central role. I think those words are all pretty self-evident. Most of us have within us versions of both modes of thought, which we each use differently in various aspects of our lives. Unfortunately, the full nature of the threat and what we can do about it is not widely understood. Standing in the way, oddly enough, is the view of the mind that accompanied the founding of our democracy. It's saying that the guys that set up our government and the Constitution believe humans or logic, logical. Democrats are still buying into that model of the mind. And he's about to challenge us in this book on what makes a human tick. Reading on in his book, you can't understand 21st century politics with 18th century brain. Why are conservatives so much better at getting their ideas across? Why do poor conservatives vote against their self-interest? 
Why do progressives not build think tanks like conservatives or invest in media in the same way? Those are the questions. What is missing is the least visible. The role of the human brain and the mind. How can knowledge about the brain and the mind help us to enact political change? That is the task of the book. Well, I can't think of anything that's more important. The central idea in the 18th century was universal reason. The notion that there is one and only one form of rationality and that is what makes us humans. The guys that set up our country thought we were logical. Here is how the link was made between universal reason and democracy. Since all people have the capacity for reason, we can govern ourselves without bowing to a higher authorities like kings or popes or oligarchs. Reason makes us equal and so the best form of government is a democracy. We use reason to secure our interest and so an optimal government would serve the interest of all. Since we all have the same reason, the same laws can apply to all. Thus, we can be governed by general, rational laws, not individual whims. Our inherent rational nature accords us inherent rights and freedoms. All of this sounds pretty much the way most people think, including me more often than I'd like to admit. Government should be dedicated to the rational interest of all citizens and must be structured so that no authority can overwhelm them. Reason contrasts with blind faith, and so government should be separated, separate from and independent of religion. Science is based on reason, and so our government should recognize, honor, and develop scientific knowledge. Sounds like a typical Democrat speaking, if you want to know so far. Therefore, a government committed to reason will be a democratic government. When democ democratic values are violated, it is reason that must be restored. Uh, and then it calls attention to Al Gore's blistering critique of the Bush administration. It is called the assault on reason. And Robert Reck's criticism of radical conservatism is called reason. There's a problem with this enlightenment, though, and it lies not in its ideas, but in the 18th century view of reason. Reason was assumed to be conscious. We know what we think. We're logical creatures. We think it and do it. Universal, the same for everyone. Disembodied, free of the body and independent of the perception and actions. Okay. That sounds like how 
I was taught as an engineer. Logical, consistent with the properties of classical logic. Unemotional, free of passions. Value neutral, the same reason applies regardless of your values. Interest space, serving one's purposes and interest. And literal, able to fit an objective world precisely with the logic of the mind, able to fit the logic of the world. That's the way probably most of us, when we think about it, think about the world. And what if these are not true? And we can sit and say they should be true, we're able to make it true. But what if it isn't true and we aren't able to make these things true? What if one of these assumptions or all of them are invalid? Well, that's what this books are about. Because in real life, people vote against their obvious self-interests. They allow bias, prejudice, emotion to guide their decisions. They argue madly about values, priorities, and goals. Or they quietly reach conclusions independent of their interests without consciously knowing why. Enlightenment reason does not account for real political behavior because the enlightenment view of reason is false. Humans do not reason logically. And that includes you. And that includes me. People with brain damage that makes them incapable of experiencing emotion or detecting it in others simply cannot function rationally. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. They cannot feel what decisions will make them or anyone else happy or unhappy, satisfied or anxious. In other words, you make a decision based on uh, the assumption that it's going to make people happy, more prosperous, uh, happiness is kind of a overall umbrella that says that what you're doing is good. But if you don't have emotion, you don't have a basis on which to judge or make an educated guess about how your actions, words will affect others. And so therefore you're not capable of reason. That's what I hear when I see that. I, I can see this chapter is going to have to be broken in, into two sessions. I'm not quite sure where to make that break, but we're going to come up on a break here soon. The proper emotions are rational. It is rational to be outraged by torture or by corruption or by character assassination are by lies that lead to thousands of death. If your policies will make people happy, then arousing hope and joy is rational. If the earth itself 
is in imminent danger, fear is rational. So emotions can be rational and they can be a guide to what is rational. If you stop at conscious reason and emotion, however, you miss the main event. Most reason is unconscious. It doesn't look anything like enlightenment reason. Thought, all thought, is brain activity. Synapses, axons, and so forth give rise to thought. Brain activity generates thought. Most brain activity you don't know is happening. But all brain activity is thought. Wow. That's pretty mind-boggling if you think about that. On the other hand, most of us think we know our own minds. This is because we engage in conscious thought and it fills much of our waking life. We think, therefore we are. But what most people are not aware of and are sometimes shocked to discover is that most of our thought, an estimated 98% is not conscious. Wow, you're aware of 2% of what's going on in your brain. And because that 2% we bring into the conscious realm, we assume we know what's going on in our brain. But we only know through that little portal of consciousness what's going on. All sorts of stuff's going on that's not in the window you're looking through. It is below the level of consciousness. It is what our brains are doing that we cannot see or hear. It is called cognitive unconsciousness. And the scientific evidence for its existence and for many of its properties is overwhelming. Unconscious thought is a reflective automatic, uncontrolled. Think of a knee reflex. When your leg, what your leg does when the doctor taps your knee. Conscious thought is reflective, like looking at yourself in a mirror. If all thought were conscious and reflective, you would know your own mind and be in control of the decisions you make. But since we don't know what our brains are doing in most cases, most thought is reflective, reflective, not reflective, reflexive. Most thought is reflexive, like your knee, not reflective, and beyond conscious control. 
As a result, your brain makes decisions for you that you are not consciously aware of. That is so earth-shaking. If you buy that, it kind of completely destroys our view of ourselves and the people around us. Your brain is not a disembodied thought machine that could just as well be functioning in a vat. It is embodied in the deepest of ways. Your brain runs your body. It extends down through the spinal cord and out via neural connections spreading throughout your body. The very structure of your brain has evolved over eons to run your body and it runs your automatic functions, your heart pumps without your commanding it. You train it when you learn to read, play the branch, banjo, or play sh shortstop. When I play tennis, we talk about muscle memory. It's actually brain memory. It's the brain that's running through your muscle that's learning how to coordinate with your eyes, um, your hearing, and everything else to make a model of how that ball's coming to you and a model of how your own body um, moves properly to, to hit the ball. And you get a bad memory of how to do it. If you get a bad habit, they're really hard to break because that memory is bedded down inside of your whole body. So it's your brain is distributed through your body. Think of that. Put that in your smoke, your pipe and smoke it, as they say. It should come as no surprise then that the ideas of our embodied brain come up with depend in large, me large measure on the peculiarities of the human anatomy in general and on the way we as human beings function on our planet and with each other. Okay, I'm going to cut this off, the section we're going to pick up right here. I think this is enough to challenge your thinking for a while, certainly mine. 98% of what's going on in your brain, you don't know about. All brain activity is thought, and you don't know about 98% of it. And that thought affects your actions. And this thought and emotion are like out there on the surface for you to see. That's part of the 2%. 98% is going on. You don't even know about it. And it goes far beyond just, you know, the functioning required to keep your brain going you're actually making thoughts that affect your actions in a subconscious way. That's what this book is about. And we don't all see the world the same way with the same models. And there's, there's some more just earth-shaking stuff coming up in this chapter. I've, I've read the whole chapter and highlighted it. Um, and it's just kind of blown me away. 
And I thought I was up on, you know, the latest brain science, but I'm obviously behind. Maybe not so behind in, you know, what's going on in the brain and how it works, but the implications of that on our lives and our political lives in particular. Anyway, this is the ancient Texan with uh, half of a chapter by George Lay on the political mind. Hope you have a good day. Hope, hope you use the 2% of your brain to think about what I've just said, what George Lay has just said. I don't take credit for it. Have a good one. Namaste, the ancient Texan. Yo, this is the ancient Texan, an earthling hoping we all can learn to live and play well together on this small and delicate planet we call home. May we all honor the sacred and our fellow inhabitants. Namaste.